marks, marks of the early church. Turn your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4. Acts is a uh, history book. It's actually a divine history book that we have in the Bible. It's a transition from the Gospels to the Epistles. And when we see um, the churches that Paul started, it helps us to understand when we get to the epistles how the, uh, the letters that were written to the church. And uh, the, one of the most Im, uh, important things that stands out in Acts chapter, uh, in chapter 2 and the whole book of Acts is the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. We see there was the birth of the New Testament church, the early church. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit at work, forming the church, uh, empowering the church, expanding its outreach, and someone has rightly called the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about the, uh, a lot of what we're going to be looking at this morning, marks of the early church, is a result, is a direct result of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the Holy Spirit uh, uh, alive and you know, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see that um, that is in the early church. The marks that we're going to look at uh, demonstrates that, that God, Jesus is building his church. And I appreciate the songs that we were singing about the church. But when we think about all the churches we have, you know, across the globe, there's churches of every stripe. And... Uh, what is God looking for when he looks down at his church? What does God want to see? What, what, what we see in the, in the uh, New Testament here in the Acts account in the early church, is that what God wants to see in the church today? And I believe it is. I believe it is. And I believe he does see that today. And we want to look at, we want to pull out uh, six different uh, marks in the early church and we want to expand on these, these ideas. Now, this is not a limited, um, this is not limited to these uh, six that I have down here. Actually, there's, there's more. But I, what I did is I chose the ones that the Bible calls great. Actually, in each of the uh, Bible verses that we're going to look at, it's, they're called great. Uh, and these are marks that God calls great. So we want to look at it. Great power. Great grace, great fear, great persecution, great joy, and a great number believe. These are marks of a spiritual church, a spiritual church. Now, when we think about the Acts chapter 4, if you're there in your Bible, uh, I have the verses up here. This is our first two points, great power and great grace. Uh, when we look at the, uh, the setting here, is just after Pentecost, and Peter had healed the, uh, the lame man. And he was in trouble with the authorities because of healing the, uh, the lame man. And, and uh, they, they said they'll let him go if they don't speak, about, speak or teach about Jesus. And they said in verse 20, in 19 and 20 there that you know, they can't help but to talk about what they've seen and heard. So in other words, they weren't going to shut up. <clears throat> And they had this long prayer meeting after that account in uh, chapter 23, uh, chapter 4, verse 23 to 31, just ahead of this, is, is all a prayer meeting. And they're praying. They're praying for courage, 
for, to, to, from God in prayer. To, they're praying for boldness to speak the truth. Uh, they're praying that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and preach with boldness. And this verse comes right after that setting. I'm going to read, start reading at verse um, 31. It says, and when they had prayed, and there's another mark of the New Testament at the early church. That's, that would be another uh, tremendous mark. And when they had prayed, the place was, that they were assembled was, was shaken, <clears throat> and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. And I believe there's another mark, unity. Unity. And neither, neither, said, of, neither said any of them that had aught of the things which he possessed, which was his own, but they had all things in common. There's another mark when we think about the, uh, the, their attitude towards possessions. Then in verse 33 it says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. And there we have our first two uh, points, the great power we want to look at, great power. Now this power is, is dunamis, that's the Greek word, and it simply means strength or power or ability. It's, it's what it means, strength, power, and ability. It's translated a lot of different ways from the Greek to the English. We see power as many times. Wonderful works, same word. Mighty works, miracles, virtue. When Jesus says virtue left him, same Greek word. Uh, in Revelation, we talk, talk about the mighty and being and strength. And we see that the root words that are English word dynamite comes from this word. An English word dynamic comes from this word. So it's power. We understand what power is. But this is more than power. This is a, uh, a miraculous power. This is miraculous power. It's marvelous power. It's moral power. It's power to live the Christian life. It's power to live above sin. It's power to preach the gospel with boldness. Jesus said, and uh, this is the last verse in red in my Bible. This is Jesus' last verse. And Jesus said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the othermost parts of the earth. Jesus said, you shall receive power. And this is this word, dunamis. You shall receive power. Power to live the Christian life. Power to be bold in speaking his word, speaking the truth in love. Now today we have a contrast verse in 2 Timothy. And this is also has the same word dunamis. This is the same word dunamis when it says there will be in the last days perilous times. Professing Christians will have a form of godliness but with no power. And that's the same word, the same word dunamis. It says for this also in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Here we see the contrast. Christians that will have, will, will have a form of godliness, no, but with no power. 
And that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants us to, he says, I will give you power. And we ask the question, why? Why do they have no power? And I believe the answer is right here. And I have underlined there, men shall be lovers of their own selves. And then it gives 16 different characteristics of selfish living. And the last one, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And we see that it's, it's all these selfish characteristics that will rob us of power that Jesus wants to give us. Powerless is not God's will. Jesus wants, he says, I will give you power. I will give you power after that which the Holy Ghost has come. And the Holy Spirit came. Now in Acts here, we see that one of the greatnesses that stands out is that they spoke the, the word with power. And Peter was, I mean, right after Pentecost, he, he preached with power. And the greatness, I believe, of the power that's mentioned here in this account in Acts is that they gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, 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 they with great power, gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened with great power. The dunamis power. You know, they understood that the world's going to hell and they went out to witness and to the witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were simply bold in their witnessing. And I think that is part of this power. This power can give us power to live the Christian life, to overcome sin, to, and it can be power in just being bold for Jesus Christ, being bold to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving witness to it. And that moves us on to our next point here, a great grace. Great grace, what is grace? Grace is a big subject. And we're going to touch on it. <clears throat> uh, it's not only what it is, but it's what it does. It's what it does. The New Testament uh, said, <clears throat> for the law came by Moses, but the great grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So it's a New Testament principle. What is it? It grace is charis. That's the Greek word. It simply means favor. We say unmerited favor because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Grace is God's giving what we don't deserve. We have the verse in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is about what God has done for man. It's not what we have done for God, not at all. That's like all the other religions. Works is a result of our salvation. We don't work to become saved, we work because we're saved. It's our workmanship, it's what we, it's the evidence. And, and here it says it's a gift, it's free. It's, you can't earn it, you can't earn it. it you, you try to give a gift to somebody and then say it's 50 bucks for the gift. That doesn't work, it's a gift, it's free. Freely you have been justified. It's free. There's a verse in Romans, and I don't think we're going to expound on it much here, but if you try to charge it, if you try to work for it, it, it isn't grace. It's canceled out. Now, it says grace, we're saved by grace through faith. Through faith. You know, God has his part, and man has our part. Picture the, the hand here, God's hand coming down from heaven, and that's grace. It's free. It says, another verse says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. 
Now are all men saved? Why aren't all men saved? Because it's through faith. There's a part we have to do to receive it. We are saved by faith. By, by faith uh, yes. <clears throat> We're saved by grace through faith. Through faith. Faith is our part. And we need to remember that. <clears throat> as we, uh, man does have a part. Yes, it's free. We're going to be looking at the, uh, the, more on the subject of grace here. This grace is all sufficient. God's grace, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency and all things may abound to every good work. It includes everything. There's nothing missing. Nothing missing. It's unending favor and goodness of God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. And we could never repay it. And there's just a lot of verses we could look at. The God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You see, it's more than salvation now. We're going to look at what it does. Grace, what it is, but what it does. What does grace do? It helps us to live the Christian life. It gives a, it's an enabling grace. And this verse says, I have it underlined, it'll make you perfect. The grace, the God of all grace will make you perfect. It's a w progress. It's, it's, we're, it's, see, it's not just a theological term but it, it, to show us how that we're saved, but it's something we experience. Grace is something we experience. Another verse in Titus, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Again, here we see that we're saved. By grace, we're saved. The grace of God hath appeared to all men. But here we see it goes farther. God wants saved people that experience His grace to, to experience, to, the ones that experience this grace to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Grace teaches us. You see, it's, 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 it's part of the experience. So by receiving grace, it's going to cause us to deny ungodliness and worldliness. It's going to bring us to hate evil, love righteousness. It teaches God's righteous way of living. He wants us to live uh, soberly, righteously, and godly. You see, that's why we preach against ungodliness. That's why we preach against worldliness. You know, we don't water down the message. That's not grace. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. You know, Luke, as he was looking at the New Testament church, the early church, he said, great grace was upon them. And if Luke would be writing about Marystown Church, what would he say? Great grace is upon them. You know, I think it's, a, it, it's, it's something we, we work toward. Grace is what makes us, makes us perfect. Uh, so we want to experience the enabling grace of God in our lives, and it's, it's divine power. Grace gives us the divine power, the divine nature. We, we can be partakers. The grace does so much, so much. In, uh, in Romans chapter 6, we have another verse. It says, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? God gives grace so we can have victory over sin, over addiction. You know, some people think grace just leaves me to do what I want to. You know, we're not under the law, just under grace. It's all grace. God will take, you know, we can just, uh, God's grace is going to take care of it so I can just go on sinning. But I wonder if Paul didn't know somebody's going to think of that and he writes here, he addresses it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? God, grace uh, he, grace, God's grace will, will, uh, will help us. We, we can't take advantage of God's grace. We cannot take advantage of God's grace. Other verses, just grace and peace shall be multiplied. <clears throat> and, but growing in grace, uh, we're encouraged to grow in grace. God wants us to grow in grace. Now, great fear is the next one we want to look at, great fear. And that's taken in Acts chapter 5. It's in my next same page in my Bible, Acts chapter 5 and verse 11. Uh, it says, great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Now this is story here, uh, this uh, verse comes right after the story of Ananias and Sapphira. A very familiar story. We know the people were selling property and they were giving money, the money to the church and it was a good thing. Ananias and Sapphira, they did the same thing except they decided they're only going to give a portion of the money. And that wasn't the problem. The problem was more that they, they, they pretended that they were given the whole amount. They wanted everybody to believe that, that, that uh, what they, were giving, they were giving everything, and actually they weren't. And Peter <clears throat> called it out here, and he said about lying, they, that he was lying to the Holy Ghost. And we know the account, how Ananias fell over dead. And they went out and buried him. And <clears throat> Sapphira, his wife, came in three hours later and didn't know what happened, and the same thing happened to her. And and they went out and buried her. And it says, right after that account, it says, great fear came upon the church and as many as heard these things. Great fear came upon them. You know, it was like the Old Testament, the immediate judgment. You know, in the Old Testament, the law required uh, capital punishment for different things, for murder, for rape, and for a rebellious son, and the list goes on. But in the Old Testament, the law of God taught the fear of God. It was teaching them to fear God. It was all about fearing God. They didn't know about the grace of God in the Old Testament. It was about fearing Him. In the New Testament, we have grace. It's about grace, but we still have to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. We the, the New Testament is full of verses that talk about we need to fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord comes first, and then grace comes second. You know, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, if we learn the fear of God first, and then we can appreciate God's grace. You know, think about that picture we had up there with God's hand coming down from heaven. With the grace on it, you know, if we have, if our part, if we fear and reverence and respect God, you know, that his grace is going to mean so much more. It's going to, we're going to appreciate it. You know, if, if we don't 
if it's all grace and no fear of the Lord, it's going to lead to a casualness and a carelessness. And actually, it can lead to a license to commit sin. Paul addressed that when he said lasciviousness is a license to commit sin. It's like a, it's cheapening grace to a place where it's just taken for granted. Like the verse we looked about, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God said, God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The idea that God is so loving that he won't punish anyone for, or for anything is part of this cheap, false grace. A verse in Romans that talks about the goodness and the severity of God. You see, God has a goodness side and he has a severity side. God is, God is, God is uh, he's holy. He's a God of love and he's also holy. You see, if, if people, if all we see is the kindness and the goodness of God and not his severity, we're not seeing the full picture. God is, God is love, he is, but he's also a God of wrath. God is kind, that's true, and he's also very strict. You know, the same God that made heaven made hell. So we see the fear of God and the grace of God are tied together. I want us to help us to see that picture. If we have the fear of God, when the fear of God and the grace of God come together, I think reverence for God is a central component to the true grace of God. And I think it's, it's largely what's missing in our churches today, the fear of the Lord. You know, the Bible talks about a verse in Romans, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's in the context of, of the uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if we look at the world, the world for sure has no fear of God. Little fear of God, no fear of God. You know, they use God's name as a curse word. They'll scorn him. Look at abortion. You could go on and on. But what about in the church? You know, we'd have, we're living in a day when we have plenty of Bibles, you know, more than probably ever before, especially in America. We have more Bible knowledge and resources. But what about the fear of God? What about the fear of God? The fear of God is what will keep us from doing that secret thing when no one else is around, from making that click or doing whatever. Ananias thought he could just do this and nobody will know. Now, if we would see somebody struck dead in our church service for not bringing in their pledge or their full pledge, or pretending it was, some, it was something it wasn't, that would bring an, a, a, you know, if we would see the immediate judgment of God like that, wouldn't that bring an, a, a, a different awareness of the God like we never saw before? Wouldn't that bring an awareness of his holiness? Wouldn't that uh, give us a carefulness not to offend him? You see, the fear of God is going to help us to be more holy. The fear of God is going to help us, you know, having these, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, the fear of God will perfect holiness. 
that's the, uh, having a proper fear of God and having a proper reverence and respect and awe is going to bring us to more of a carefulness to, to not offend him, being a, bring more holiness about in our lives. The, you know, the verse I talked about earlier that the law came by Moses and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So now in the New Testament, if we're living under the, the New Testament, we're living under grace. So should we be living, should our lives be more holy than the Old Testament saints had under the law? And is this happening today? Do we have a, do we have a, a sense of, of more holiness about us today than in the Old Testament? Since we having the, since Jesus brought us grace, and we could ask, why not? Why or why not? And then we'll look at this picture again. Well, let's think about this. You know, is is God's grace? Is God's grace handing down from heaven? And let's think about man's part here, and that we're fearing Him. We're fearing Him. We we have a reverence and a holy awe of who He is. So, is God's grace lacking? Is God's grace lacking at all? And the answer is no. God, God's grace has appeared to all men. It's not lacking at all. I think our, the, the lacking comes in our fearing God. The fearing God comes first. A proper fear is going to perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. So how can, we, how can we cultivate a more fear of God in our lives? How can we, you know, how can we bring about more res holy respect for who God is? And I believe it's simply by the word of God. You know, if we have a high regard for the word of God, you know, David says, I love thy law, I meditate in it day and night. You know, that's where God reveals himself to us. And that's where, so we see the fear of God and the grace of God coupled together, coupled together. And that gives power. <clears throat> so we have the, uh, when you have a church, the early church here, you know, I believe they were living in the fear of God. It says they had great fear. And they experienced great grace. And they were preaching the gospel with great power. And that leads into the next point. They had persecution. They had persecution. You know, the uh, Bible says... In Acts chapter 8, turn a couple pages back there. In Acts chapter 8, there was a great persecution among the church. You know, a great persecution. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It says all. It doesn't say some. And it says shall. It doesn't say may. So they suffered persecution. And today, you know, all we have to do to avoid persecution is say that Allah and Jesus will get you the same way to God. All they had to say is that uh, Judaism is the same as Christianity, and they could have avoided all their persecution. You know, to avoid persecution, all we have to do is water down the message so we don't offend, so we don't offend. You know, how did the professing church get to the place of condoning sodomy? Or even take it a step further, how did the Mennonite church get to the place of ordaining a sodomite in the pulpit? 
I believe that they ran some yellow lights and red lights, or they, did, they didn't take a stand on something else before. Maybe it was divorce and remarriage. Maybe it was, uh, uh, but it, the idea is they went along with the sin of the day. And if we wanna avoid, if we wanna avoid persecution, we can go along with the sin of the day. We're talking about persecution. You know, <clears throat> someone said when gay marriages became legal, that meant persecution for the church. In Texas, they, there's a mayor that's openly a sodomite. And apparently pastors in that town were speaking out against it. And they had, they had uh, these, their five pastors that had their sermons subpoenaed, emails, and their text messages. They were trying to uh, prosecute for hate speech. I don't think it happened. But, you know, to speak out against uh, sodomy doesn't mean that we hate the person. If we speak out against stealing, are we, do, does that mean we hate the robber? No, we hate the sin. So why is it that you, will get, you won't get accused for preaching, speaking out against stealing, but when you speak out against sodomy, it's hate speech? You know, <clears throat> we're not haters. They hate the word of God. They hate the Jesus of the Bible that speaks out against their sin. You know, Jesus came, it says, Jesus came in John 3, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus came to expose the darkness of evil, the dark deeds of evil. Jesus came to expose that. In 1 John it says, for, the for this purpose the Son of Man was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see, Jesus just, just when he, 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 ex he came as light and just ripped open the mask of off of sin. And people don't like it. People don't like Jesus of the Bible. You know, people love the baby Jesus. We came through Christmas time and everybody celebrates Christmas. People like the Jesus that, that is going to uh, make them uh, healthy and wealthy. You know, like they like the, the idea of Jesus healing the sick and, and, uh, and healing the sick and, and feeding the hungry. But they hate the Jesus that reveals their deeds of darkness. They hate the Jesus. Jesus is light. We're talking about persecution. To avoid persecution, all we have to do is preach just the goodness of God, not his severity. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You see, the messenger of Jesus will be persecuted. It's almost like it's saying it's a guarantee especially in a country that's going atheist. You know, we're salt. Salt irritates, right? Salt stings. What do the years ahead of us hold? What do the years ahead, when it comes to uh, the way our country is going, how do we prepare for persecution? Someone has said, well, I don't know if we can. You know, we have... Um, a verse here that says, I think we're not supposed to worry about it. 
Take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, or what neither do you be ye premeditated by whatsoever shall be given to you that are that you speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. You see, I believe if we are, God will be with us in that hour. I don't think we have to worry and fret. I think we need to live faithful now. If we're living faithful now, we will be faithful then. Persecution can come from a lot of different sources. And Mark uh, chapter 13 uh, brings some of this. Persecution can come from the church. And largely in the years past, if you study the, the persecution, it came from the church, the Reformation. Largely came, persecution came from within, from the councils and the synagogues. And the early church, uh, you know, the persecution came, a lot of it came from the Judaizers. Uh, Mark, the, Mark uh, 13, 9, the second part, it says it can come from government, rulers and kings. That's, uh, that's a very possibility that we can ha see persecution coming. And uh, the Bible says it can come from your own family. And for a Muslim, this is very real, very real. Giving your heart to Jesus Christ means uh, it's more than shunning. Reasons for persecution. Uh, Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we can, we can be persecuted just for, by being righteous, by living a righteous life. It, it, can, uh, it can bring conviction on someone, possibly. You know, there's some people that admire Christians, and there's some people that don't. Salt can irritate. So just by living a righteous life, we can be persecuted. Uh, the, this, the last part, we can be persecuted for, for my name's sake, for Jesus' sake, for, for, for being a follower of Jesus. Even Mark's account, it says, for my name's sake. So we can be, if we stand up for Jesus Christ, if we're going to not to, not to bend and we're not to, uh, we can suffer persecution. And then we have three kinds of persecution in that verse 11, being reviled. You know, being reviled is being uh, abused, uh, insulted, scolded, uh, mocked. And being persecuted, that would be simply being tortured or martyred, treated with hostility. And uh, lastly, having all manner of evil spoken against you. And that's like being slandered or cursed or cursed at or lied about. You know, that's, Jesus was lied about, took him to the cross. Now, just, uh, I'm just going to touch here a little bit. You know, we don't want to confuse, some people get uh, persecution mixed up with wrongdoing. You know, when we suffer for our own wrongdoing, it's not persecution. You know, what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults and you take it patiently? But if you do well and suffer for it, and take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. You know, if we do dumb stuff and suffer for it, it's what we deserve. But if we suffer as a Christian, that's when God takes notice. So we don't want to confuse. People can get um, confused what persecution is. How do we respond? <clears throat> well, we can respond by loving. What's our attitude should be to release love, 
Release love. You have heard that it had been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now this doesn't mean that we have to have warm feelings of, of emotion. Love is an action. Love is something we do. It says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good. It's doing. It's saying, to Je it's saying I'm, I'm treating you the way Jesus treated me, releasing love. And I believe that's one of the greatest witnesses that we can have, the greatest witnesses that we can bring when they can see love. This is in the context of Stephen's stoning. Now imagine Stephen being stoned. Oh, actually, the word martyr and witness come from the same Greek word, the same Greek word. And the example of Stephen, imagine him there preaching. He didn't compromise, he didn't back down. And the people got so angry at him that they stoned him. They picked up stones and they stoned him. And he was a martyr. But you know, he was also a witness because the Bible says about Saul standing by and holding the coat of those that were throwing the stones. And Saul, I, the Bible doesn't say this, but I wonder if Saul could ever get that image out of his mind. That image of Stephen that was, had a glowing, shining face and would, had a connection to heaven and, and, and had the attitude of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. A martyr, he would, Stephen was a martyr and a witness. And the last thing here we see that we are, a response that we should have is rejoice. And we say, how can we rejoice when we're being persecuted? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted the prophets which were before you. Why should we rejoice? Well, I believe it's evidence of living a godly life in Christ Jesus. Great is your reward in heaven. And there it brings us to our last, the, 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 uh, the next point, great joy. Great joy. Great joy. Uh, it's mentioned twice in Acts 8 and Acts 15 too, that there was great joy in the city and they caused great joy upon all the believers, even though they were being persecuted. Even though they were being persecuted. You know, in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 5, the account right after Ananias and Sapphira, when they were again in prison and they were beaten, and uh, the verse is up here, and it says they were rejoicing that they could be counted worthy to suffer for his name. That was the early church. They were, they were in prison and they were beaten and they were counted, they left rejoicing, counting it worthy that they could suffer for his name. Counting it worthy. Great joy, you know, joy is not dependent on uh, circumstances. Joy is, you know, happiness is, is depending on our circumstances, not joy. Happiness is, is outward, uh, outward depending on what, you know, it's what happens. But we, we live in a day when a lot of people are seeking happiness. They want to be happy, you know, and if we put our trust in happiness, we're, we're going to be a victim of our circumstances. The Bible doesn't tell us to, be, to rejoice in our circumstances. It tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. You know, circumstances change. The Bible doesn't. God doesn't change. So the Bible tells us to rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. Now, it's not like we're supposed to be happy all the time. 
We can't be happy all the time. The, G, Jesus wasn't happy all the time. Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. So I think, don't think it'd be right to say to someone who's going through a hard time, you know, just smile and be happy. That's not, it's not, that's, that's circumstance. Joy comes from within. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. It's being connected to the vine. Joy is knowing that your sins are under the blood. That knowing that your sins are under the blood. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of his glory. You see, here we see in this verse that faith brings justification. Then that justification brings peace with God. And it's that peace with God that brings the joy, the joy, that, uh, the, the uh, rejoicing in the hope and the glory of God. So what can rob us? It starts with the being right with God, the right standing with God. So what can rob us of our joy? And I believe it's sin. You know, peace and joy come from a cleansed life, being justified. And so we cannot tolerate sin. It's going to rob us of our joy. David, we know when David sinned and he prayed in his prayer in Psalms 51, restore unto me Thy jo- restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy right spirit. David's sin caused him to lose his joy and he's asking for his joy to return. You know, joy, it's, uh, the Bible tells us to serve the Lord with gladness. Uh, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, often uh, we can get weary and worn as the Songwriter says it, you know, on this pathway below. <clears throat> Joy can take out the weariness. It can take out of any of our work that we're anything. The joy of the Lord is from within. It can come in and flood us and even give us physical energy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, the early church was living with great joy. <clears throat> and I believe because of the, it was because of the great fear that they had for the Lord. They experienced great grace and they were preaching with great power and they, that produced this joy even if they were persecuted. Even if they were persecuted. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. So there it was. The great, um, the, uh, the great joy it came from the great fear that it, they experienced that great grace and they, they preached the, uh, and they, with great power and they had great joy even though they were persecuted and the result was that a great number believed. A great number believed. You know, the, they had a, this, this uh, they, they preached with power and there was response. The gospel message and to, there was response to the gospel message and souls were saved. Souls were saved. Uh, we see right after Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. And there the Lord added to his church daily as they should be saved. There was salvation. There was, there was souls being saved. You know, the persecution did not stop them. Someone has said that persecution was, is the seed of the church. And if you go back to the Anabaptists, you know, they, back in the, uh, the, the time of the Reformation... 
You know, they just, they could not put out, and they tried hard, but they could not put out the, the movement, the Anabaptist movement during the Reformation. Persecution, the more they persecuted them, the more they, the more they grew and the more they spread. And today, so the, 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 uh, the result in the early church was that souls were being saved. And today, souls are being saved. You know, the gospel message never changed. We have the same message today, the same Jesus, the same message. And today, souls are being saved. You know, I saw in the, uh, just, just this last week, uh, news, you know, I, this, the Iranians are turning to Jesus. There's, there's souls being saved around the world. So <clears throat> let's be involved. I believe that is God's heartbeat. You know, God wants, a, God wants a, uh, the church to glorify him, ultimately to bring glory to his name. But I believe the heartbeat of God is that souls would be saved, that all would come to repentance. So when we think about these marks of the early church, you know, the, uh, all of these, these marks, the, uh, the great fear the, the, that, that produced great, uh, that coupled with the great grace, that, with great, uh, uh, great fear, great grace, and great, uh, anyway, all the, the, the marks of the, 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 church, the early church, you know, when we think about God in heaven, he is a great God, right? And we have a great Bible. We have a great salvation. We have a great hope and we have a great home in heaven. What kind of Christian do I want to be for him? I think these, these marks here all talk about, reference a great Christian. And, you know, largely when we think about these, these points, the great fear and the great grace and the great power and the great joy are, are largely his work, largely his work. Yes, fearing God is our part. Fearing God, if we fear him, the rest is God's work. He's, he, the grace is from him. The power is from him. The joy is from him. Yeah, we might suffer persecution, but his grace will be there for us. And so ultimately, souls being saved is God's work. God's work. It's not our work. We can't save anyone. We can be a witness, but we can't save anyone. Let's be uh, on fire for our great God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and love. Thank you for the example of the early church. And Lord, as we think about you looking down from heaven and saying, what do you want the church to look like today? Am I that? And we realize that individuals are made of, up the church. And I can ask myself, am, what kind of individual am I in this church? Am I, do I have these marks in my life? Am I involved in the great commission like you want us to be? Father, forgive us where we fail. Help us to be a bright and shining light for you. We pray this in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen.